Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. There are a lot of times in our experiences and, and in our, our lives where thing, things seem a certain way. But we're going to see that things aren't always just as they seem. That we need the spirit of truth to stand up and actually to interpret experiences and reality. What looks like the destruction, the death, the, the end of the mission of Jesus is actually the fulfillment of the mission. And so we're going to look, uh, we've been looking all week in our, our Holy Week readings, we've been looking at, looking at how Matthew's Gospel speaks of the passion of the Christ. And we come to the ultimate, the ultimate passion of Jesus in Matthew chapter 27. In verse 45 we read, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James. This week as I've been studying Matthew's Gospel, something has struck me that I've never seen in all the years that I've studied it. I've noticed that he is not really a journalist here. He's not a reporter. He's really a teacher. He's a preacher. He's a, a herald of the gospel of Jesus Christ because he's not only describing the suffering of Jesus, but he's describing and explaining the purpose and the meaning of what is happening. It's interesting, there's no gore in any of this. There's no brutal details, but yet he faithfully describes exactly what's going on. Well, why isn't there more of the brutality uh, 
written about? Or why isn't the, the blood and the guts and all that there? Well, because it's not about just the details of his suffering. It's about understanding the purpose and the objective of the suffering. It's not about you being moved by how, in, how much injustice or unfairness was, was put upon Jesus, but rather it's you and I coming to understand the meaning of the cross. You see, it's not just to move you to sympathy, but it's to get you to understand what is happening. When people are just moved emotionally, it's not enough. The cross of Jesus Christ is the embodiment in the Roman world of shame and defeat and obscenity of suffering and pain. And yet, that cross and its meaning transformed the followers of Jesus into people who knew love, who lived in joy, and who had power. Resurrection power, even. See, it's not enough to be moved emotionally. Being moved emotionally will not transform you. Being a person who understands the meaning of the cross will transform you, and you will receive the love and the joy and the power of, of the Spirit of Jesus. Jesus makes this clear in Luke 23, where there's a group of women who are weeping over, over his physical state. And he says to them, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. You see, Jesus, in all of the things that were going on, he knew exactly who he was. He knew exactly what he was doing, and nothing was going to deter him. Nothing was going to distract him from accomplishing his mission. And so Matthew, the teacher, it helps us to understand the meaning of, of the cross through three cries that we see in the narrative that I just read. The first of the cries is Jesus himself, and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the original language, it's really clear. It says in English with a loud voice, but what it really is, is a scream, an agony. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's in agony. It looks incredibly unheroic. It looks weak. It looks vulnerable. He's screaming in agony. Well, this is really what Matthew is reporting and, and revealing as the true passion of Jesus. You see, in our day, the passion of Jesus is maybe not understood because it's, it's a word that, that, that really meant the depth of suffering that goes all the way to the foundation, the root of the heart or the root of the soul. In our day, passion means uh, heavy breathing. <laughs> it means romance. It means uh, the name of a perfume. It's a type of, of some of erotic kind of love. But in, in, in Matthew's understanding of passion and in the biblical understanding of passion, you cannot have a deep love without having deep suffering. You cannot have infinite love without experiencing infinite suffering. What you and I have to understand and why 
Jesus isn't looking for our sympathy as he goes through the trial and as he goes through his beatings and all of, all of the, the ways that, that he was in pain. He's not looking for our sympathy. He's wanting us to understand, and Matthew's trying to get across to us, that's not really the issue. You see, the physical suffering, Jesus didn't complain one time. Jesus didn't complain at all about how much it hurt. Matthew's not wanting us to understand this as a psychological kind of suffering. Jesus didn't say, you've hurt my feelings. Uh, you know, somehow you've, you've, you've misunderstood me. He didn't say that at all. He doesn't complain psychologically, and he doesn't complain about the physical. This cry is not about natural suffering. In all of his, all of his physical pain, he has been calm. In all of his emotional pain, he has been in control. No complaints. This is so much more than physical. This is so much more than psychological. Would you listen to this description? Jesus is screaming because he's experiencing infinite spiritual suffering. Let me, let me explain what I mean by this. You understand, when we read that, there was this interesting detail there, if you listen carefully. Darkness came. About 12, darkness came. And then lasted throughout this whole season. That's not just a description of the physical realm. That's a supernatural darkness that covered the earth as Jesus is suffering on the cross. We're not talking about his physical suffering, friends. Darkness, when it comes like this, this is a supernatural darkness. In the scripture, darkness is the more common description of hell. Outer darkness is the most common description of hell. I mean, even think about in a physical way, if the sun goes out, we're all dead. If there is nothing but darkness, there is no life. He is experiencing, and Matthew is explaining to us, the darkness of hell has surrounded the cross. Jesus, his soul is being plunged into spiritual darkness. Please understand this. Even, even though we have some sense of, of the of the natural kind of time that's taking place. Think about this with me. Heaven and hell are not subject to time. They're outside of time. Heaven and hell are places that are very clearly described. Heaven is the presence of God. Hell is the forsakenness of God. Neither has a sense of days or hours or weeks or Anything but a sense of timelessness, of eternity. Please listen to me on this. None of us have ever been as one with the Father as the Son was with the Father. But in that darkness, He was forsaken. 
in that darkness. He was cast into the outer darkness. See, this is infinitely beyond any rejection that any of us, that any human has ever experienced. This is infinitely beyond any separation that any human has ever experienced. This cry, though, is not just his infinite suffering. It is a cry of his infinite love. How do I know that? Well, I, I know that because he's not just saying a complaint. You've forsaken me. No, he's quoting scripture. In his moment of darkness, in his infinite suffering, the Son of God, the Son of Man, our substitute, our sacrifice, is in that moment quoting Scripture. And let me just, let me tell you, anybody who knew the Scriptures anywhere around him would not just hear him say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They would start realizing he is referring to Psalm 22. And though Psalm 22 begins with the suffering of the servant of the Lord, the psalm ends in victory. Here's how it ends. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Do you understand when Jesus quotes Psalm 22, even though he only uses the first part of the psalm, he is referring them to the victorious, triumphant ending of the psalm as well. In other words, he's saying, I am in this outer darkness. I am experiencing the forsakenness of the Father here. But I am sticking to the plan the Father had. I am trusting in what the Father has asked me to do, and my Father will accomplish what He has purposed to do. I am not backing down. I am going to see generations proclaim my righteousness. See, He's suffering for love of us. Yes, He is obeying His Father. Yes, He is trusting His Father. But in the darkness, He is loving us. He's not just uttering a scream. He's not just testifying to how physically and emotionally painful the suffering is. Jesus is basically calling out from hell and saying to us, I'm loving you. What a contrast, friends. And how important contrasts are in the scriptures. You see, when they were accusing him, he was silent. Even Pilate was amazed at Jesus' poise. Do you know why? Because Pilate thought he was the judge. He seemed like the judge. He was the Roman delegate. He was the authority. It looked like he had control. But truthfully, it was Jesus who was in control. And Pilate noticed how poised Jesus was. Really and truly, Pilate was being judged. Because Jesus, in every situation, is the righteous judge. And yet... Before Pilate, and with all the accusations of blasphemy and treason that were spoken against him, he, he remained silent. I want you to understand, I want you to hear this. He would not plead innocent 
to the charges for which, for which we are guilty. See, by staying silent, the charges against you could be put on Jesus. This darkness that came over Jesus was, was, he, was he who knew no sin was becoming sin. He was receiving the penalty of the charges against me and the charges against you. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears silent. He opened not his mouth. And then this beautiful picture of the infinite love of Jesus who was willing to infinitely suffer so he could infinitely love you. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, this is, this is probably one of the most powerful ways to look at this narrative. Jesus, in that darkness, was going into the, the presence of God as if he were the only person on earth who was guilty. So that all the focus of God's wrath on our guilt was focused on Jesus and the cross alone. But he was doing it so that you and I, believing in Jesus, receiving forgiveness from Jesus, could go into the presence of God, innocent, righteous, holy. Not only does this have incredible spiritual ramifications. I mean, the spiritual ramifications are amazing. It, it, it basically, what we're saying is no religion can get you near God. No goodness on your part is enough to get you near God. But Jesus became the only, as if he were the only guilty person in the world with all your charges on him so that now you can enter into the presence of God innocent, justified, made righteous in right standing with God. I, I really believe in what this has done in my life is not only has it brought spiritual healing, but it has brought emotional healing. It's brought soul restoration. I believe that, that there are two things that are true of every human. We have fears and we have needs. And our emotional needs, our intimacy needs, are just being human. They're not part of a weakness. They're part of being human. And our fears are always connected to those needs. So the two greatest fears that a respected psychologist says we all have is we have the fear of not being in control, of being powerless. And we have the fear of being disconnected, of being rejected, of being alone, lonely, separated. You think about this. Our Savior entered into our deepest fears. He was powerless. He made himself vulnerable, killable. He let go of control, in a sense, of letting others take his life. For your sake, for mine. He entered into our fear. And he was disconnected. He was forsaken by his 
Father, why did he do that except to fulfill our deepest needs? And those needs are really based out of, out of the, the need that we have to be loved. Here is Jesus entering into our deepest fears. He's cut off from life. He's cut off from God. He's, he's on a cross, nailed to the cross, and yet he's thinking about how will I meet the needs of you and me. And those needs are powerful needs in our lives. The need to be free from fear, feeling safe and secure and feel like I don't have to worry. I don't have to have fear anymore. To be accepted in an unconditional way so that I, I'm not afraid of being disconnected or I'm not afraid of being rejected. To know that I have worth, that I have value, that, that somehow outside of what I do or don't do, there's still a significance to my life. What Jesus has done is he's fulfilled all three of those. He is, one, he has entered into death for you so you don't have to be afraid of anything. He has proven you're significant because when he was in hell, he was loving you. And he was forsaken and rejected by the Father. He entered into the outer darkness so that you never have to. He went into God's presence as if he were the only guilty one. So that now you enter God's presence as an innocent, as a justified, as a holy one. The second cry follows up the first. It says that Jesus cries out and he gives up his spirit. Now Matthew doesn't tell us what he cried, but John does. And John says that with a loud voice, Jesus cried, it is finished. The debt is paid. The mission is accomplished. Forgiveness is secured, basically, is what he's saying. And Matthew, though he doesn't tell us what the cry of Jesus is, he tells us the result of the full payment of sin. The temple curtain was torn in two. Why is this significant? Well, if you know your Old Testament at all, People didn't have access to the Holy of Holies. The courts were divided up. If you were a Gentile, you had a certain distance. If you were a woman, you had a certain distance. If you were a devout man, you had a certain distance. But even the, the, the high priest could only come near once a year, and he did so in fear of his life. There was no access to the presence of God. And yet, when the debt is paid, when it is finished, the curtain tears in two, rips apart, wide open, so that we, who have no right to that access, now are brought near. Jesus is cast out so that we can enter in. Jesus experiences outer darkness so that we can enter into the holy of holies. This is an amazing narrative. Jesus is obedient all the way to the end. He doesn't give up his spirit. He doesn't, he doesn't give in to death until he has finished the work that he has done. And even as he's going through this, he's quoting scripture. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that in deep pain, a heart gets revealed that's been concealed? 
In the deepest pain, Jesus' heart is revealed to be saturated with the Word of God. What is he saying? He's saying to you and me, you can trust God. You can live a life of obedience. You can live a life of surrender because, because I've paid the debt. He's saying, do you not understand your worth, your significance is established. You're accepted now in the holy of holies in an unconditional way because I have torn the veil and I have paid the price. I love to listen to sermons on, on Good Friday, on, on the crucifixion of Jesus, the atoning work of Jesus. I love to read everything I can and listen to everything I can that's good. But I was, I was surprised when I heard this. I'd never heard it before. That Buddha's last words were the opposite of Jesus. He said, strive to save yourself. Strive to save yourself. And Jesus' last words, it is finished. The debt is paid. See, the one says your worth will never be established. The one says your security will never be sure. And Jesus says, I've already secured unconditional acceptance. I've already secured your worth and your value. I have already secured that you're safe. Even to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Well, there's a third cry, and it's not Jesus' cry. It's the centurion's cry. And, and this one, I do want to focus on a little bit here. Listen to what it says. The centurion and those who were with him. So it's not just the centurion. It's, it's the soldiers who were under his command who had been keeping watch over Jesus. They saw the earthquake and they saw everything that had taken place. And they were filled with awe. And they said, truly this was the Son of God. And Luke adds to it and says, truly this was a righteous man. It's interesting to me, and I, I want you to hear this. It took an outsider to see Jesus. The insiders, those who should have known, the religious people, they totally misunderstood him. They said, is he calling for Elijah? You know, when he said, Eli, Eli, that was Aramaic. So they could have mistakenly thinking he was calling out the name of Elijah. And so they're saying, is he calling for Elijah to save him? And there were some that were thinking, just like so many do, they thought, well, he's really in physical pain. Let's give him some cheap wine. You know, it won't cost much and see if it can kind of soothe his pain a little bit. And then there were others that as he's infinitely suffering out of infinite love for them, they're mocking him. Well, let's see if Elijah will rescue him. Friends, Grace often escapes religious people. Grace often escapes religious people. Grace mostly appeals to outsiders. Here's this Roman centurion. He's a commander of a hundred soldiers. They're probably a detachment of, of Syrian-born soldiers. He's probably presided over hundreds, maybe even thousands of crucifixions and 
Certainly he has gotten hardened along with his men. It says that he was keeping watch or was in charge of Jesus. So it's possible that really he's been with Jesus even before Jesus went to Pilate. And he's with him when he's lowered from the cross and he's still with him when he's given to Joseph of Arimathea to go and be buried. You know, he would have probably ordered his men to beat Jesus. He probably was watching as they mocked him, as they, as they, they ridiculed him, as they spit on him and treated him in the way that they did. This centurion is mentioned in three out of the four gospel accounts. He's not mentioned because of his cruelty or his ruthlessness. He's mentioned for something way more important. He's mentioned because a marvelous transformation occurred. Truly, this was the Son of God. Luke says, when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God. And here we see, just like that, the man who presided over Jesus' execution, the man who ordered the nails to be driven in his hands and feet, became the first believer in Jesus. For some reason, grace appeals to outsiders because they realize they're not on the inside. You see, there's this fascinating thing in human, again, in human needs. We want to be insiders. We want to belong to something. This centurion and all who follow Jesus, all who realize they're bankrupt, all who realize they're disconnected from God, they're powerless to save themselves, all who realize those truths and then receive what Jesus accomplished on the cross go from being outsiders to true insiders. Because what Jesus does is he takes the outsider who professes faith in Jesus and puts him in the most important insider circle ever. He connects him to the love of the Father. And he connects him to the love of the Son. And he gives him the Holy Spirit who is the personalized expression of the very love of God. You go from being an outsider to the ultimate insider. I want to ask you tonight, have you realized that it's got to be that you cannot save yourself, that you're powerless? Have you realized that you're disconnected from the love of God, the life of God, but tonight you can make a change. Tonight, just like the centurion who was the first believer in Jesus, your life can be transformed. The cross, which was a symbol of pain and obscenity, the cross becomes the symbol of transformation, love, acceptance, Freedom from fear. Freedom from separation and rejection and forsakenness. He did all this for you. He cries out from the hell of the outer darkness and says, I'm loving you. Will you not receive my love? Would you pray with me? Would you pray to receive Jesus as your Savior? as your Lord, that you wouldn't be like those who thought they were insiders but missed his grace 
so that the only one that got it was an outsider? Would you be one of those who realize tonight you need a Savior? You need what Jesus has done. And instead of just sympathizing with Jesus' pain, you're transformed by the meaning of the cross. Will you pray with me? Would you say these words, Father, I come in the name of Jesus, confessing that I am an outsider, that I am broken, that I am bankrupt spiritually, that I am powerless to save myself, that I am disconnected from you because of my sin. But tonight I believe you are truly the Son of God. And I receive your work on the cross. I receive it for me, that you became guilty with my sins. You became guilty with my charges. You were treated as I deserve so that now I'm receiving the treatment you deserve. Would you realize tonight that the Father, that the Son, the Holy Spirit has always wanted you to be an insider? Would you come to Jesus tonight? Don't stay on the fringe in religion. Don't stay on the fringe in, in, in trying to be a better person. Recognize what the cross means. That Jesus was forsaken so that you never have to be. And tonight, on Good Friday, we always like, we always like to celebrate and observe the Lord's Supper. We call this communion. Because what we're going to do is we're going to participate in Jesus where he said, this is my body which is broken for you. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is present when we take this and say he's giving us a gift, a gift of his presence. Do you understand when the temple curtain was torn, he said, you have access to my presence. But this is also a table of consecration. You see, this table says you can't serve two masters. You can't leave this table and go eat at the table of other ultimate you know, ultimate treasures or idols or other gods. This is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ and none other. When you come to this table, he's saying when you eat this meal, you are, you are, you are participating in me. You are sharing in me. You can't take this table without consecrating yourself to him. Why is that? Well, because this table is his ultimate giving himself to you. So you can't receive what he gives here if you're not willing to give ultimately yourself to him. You can't serve two masters. Either he's your savior or not. He's your Lord or not. But you know, this is just a taste I remember as a kid, we had these tiny little cups of juice. And I was always like, can't we have more juice? I like this juice. 
or they had these tiny little wafers, which I never said, can I have more of those, because they were stale and awful. But this significance is not the elements, even though our bread is beautiful, baked by Ashley, Pastor Ashley for us. And this cup is beautiful. It's, it, the significance is not the elements. The significance is the one who has provided and the one who is signaled and signified by these elements. This weekend I was thinking about, about this taking of communion. I was reminded that most of the time when there's a marriage, when there's a wedding, and a wedding reception, there's usually a rehearsal dinner beforehand. And I can remember when my son got married and we had a rehearsal dinner and we invited all his friends and we invited all the wedding party and the family and everybody came. And I being the father, I had to pay. It was my job to supply the rehearsal dinner. The father has supplied through his son, the Lord Jesus, the rehearsal dinner. That's what this is. You see, what we do when we eat this, we are anticipating. By this little taste and by this little cup, we are anticipating the supper of the wedding of the bride of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, and the bridegroom Jesus himself. This is just a taste. But it is a reminder of the fulfillment and the fullness that is coming. And just as Jesus was faithful to the end, I'm asking you, consecrate yourself, saturate yourself with the Word of God so that even when you're in your deepest pain, what comes out is God's Word, God's love, and God's power. I'm going to pray over these elements and then... I'm going to ask you to participate. We're going to sing a song after we finish with this. But would you pray with me? Father, you have provided through your son Jesus, through his mission, through his sacrifice, through his substitute, you have provided the beginnings of the supper that we will celebrate in fullness at the wedding supper of the Lamb. This is only a taste. And these are ordinary elements. This is bread, this is juice. But we consecrate it, Lord, that this is our only table of spiritual food. We're not going to go to another God. We're not going to go to another Savior. And we're definitely not going to try to save ourselves. We come consecrating ourselves that you who gave yourself before we ever gave anything of ourselves, that you are worthy of our praise, you're worthy of our surrender, that even while you were in the outer darkness, you were calling forth and saying to us, I love you. So we set apart these ordinary elements for this extraordinary purpose to stir up the grace of God in our lives. Let's eat and drink together.